Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining today's call. I'm Jim Doyle with Business Forward, uh, and I'll be moderating our conversation with Congressman John Delaney today. Currently, all lines are in listen-only mode. Uh, we're, we're pleased to welcome Congressman Delaney uh, as, as the kickoff for our Solutions 2020 program. This is our uh, uh, effort to help 100,000 local business leaders brief uh, presidential candidates, their campaign staff, and the policymakers likely to shape the 2020 race. Uh, for those of you who are new to our programming, Business Ford organizes local roundtables, Washington fly-ins, conference calls, webinars, and media trainings for business leaders across America. At these briefings, business leaders get a chance to advise Was uh, Washington on ways to grow our economy and increase economic opportunity. More than 650 mayors, governors, members of Congress, and senior administration officials have participated in our programming, and this is all thanks to the support of more than 60 of America's largest and most respected companies. Before we get started, a couple of housekeeping items. Uh, as I mentioned, there's time for questions and comments. You can participate in two ways. One, you can press one on your dial pad at any time to be entered into the queue to ask your question live. If you do that, just introduce yourself and where you're calling from. Uh, or if it's easier, you can email your question to us at info at businessfwd.org, and I'll read it aloud. Again, press one or send an email question to info at businessfwd.org. Uh, this call is on the record, and there may be reporters present. Present, uh, and with that, let's get started. Uh, Congressman Delaney, thank you very much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. And again, I apologize, everyone, on this call for being late. I was at John Dinkle's funeral, who uh, most of you know passed away this past week, the longest-serving member of Congress. And uh, as you all probably know, the length of these things is sometimes a little harder to control. But it's great to be with you and to have an opportunity to talk to you about uh, the things that are important to you as business owners. And I can certainly relate to how you think about the world based on my experience in life prior to running for Congress. I spent about 20 years in the private sector, started two businesses. Took, so I had a very good insight, I believe, as to what's going on in the private economy. And I've been in Congress now for about six years. So... That experience really informs how I think about the world from the perspective of economic policy. And what I really try to stress are solutions that actually can help grow our economy and help workers. I think if you're going to be pro-worker, you have to be pro-business. And I think the best solutions for economic growth occur when you have the private sector and the government sector and to some extent the nonprofit sector working together. And I think one of the problems we've had in the last several decades is there's been a lot of change in the world, mostly driven by globalization and technological innovation. And we haven't done the things we've needed to do to ensure that we take advantage of that as best we can, not only for our businesses, but also for our workers. A lot of the economic growth in this country has been very concentrated. Last year, 80% of the venture capital in this country was invested in 50 counties and there's almost 3,100 counties in this country. So you have a real concentration of opportunity, which is the one, of, one of the reasons I was a leader on something called um, the uh, Economic Opportunity Zone legislation, which creates a tax incentive for people to invest in communities that have been left behind economically. One of the reasons I've been supportive of a big bipartisan infrastructure push that I led mm -hmm. to launch a trillion dollar national infrastructure program fully paid for uh, with, a, with a particular allocation for infrastructure projects and communities that have been left behind. And it's generally speaking why I've been very focused on how we find common ground 
on the big issues of the day, whether it's improving health care and fixing the Affordable Care Act, lowering drug prices um, for our citizens, particularly by allowing the United States to be more competitive in the, in the drug pricing business, because to some extent, the rest of the world is free riding on us. It's why I found bipartisan solutions to deal with climate change in a way that I think is very pro-market oriented. And it's why I focused on things like the earned income tax credit is really smart tax policy to help workers. So in general, my approach has been to look for solutions. I think there's, there's good answers on each side of the aisle and our jobs as elected officials should be to find those right answers wherever they may reside and try to get things done to grow our economy and help workers and help our citizens. But to do that, you have to understand what's going on in the world. You have to understand what the most important trends are. And I think you probably agree with me as we sit here today, the most significant trend in the world right now is technological innovation. It's changing our economy. It's changing the future of work. It's changing our security risks. It's changing our privacy. It's changing how we relate to each other as citizens. And uh, it's one of the reasons why I've called for a national artificial intelligence strategy to be developed by the government, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector to ensure that these changes are as beneficial as possible for the American people. So that's a little bit of an overview of how I think about things uh, and some of the policies that I think are important and what my approach to governing is. But what I'd really like to do, because again, it's been about eight years since I've been running my business, what I really want to do is hear what you all have to say because the best way to understand what's going on in the economy is to talk to people who are running small to mid-sized companies because that's where all the jobs is created and that's actually the, the part of the market, as you all know, that drives a lot of economic growth. I'd love to understand the challenges you face in this economy, which I think is generally doing pretty well, uh, but again, I think is a little too concentrated, and uh, what you think policymakers can do to help your business grow and, and create jobs in your communities. So I'll pause there, and, and maybe we'll turn it over to questions at this time. Uh, great. Uh, Congressman, we've already got three questions that relate to health care. Uh, so rather than just sort of go through three different questions, could you just talk a little bit about what, you would, what your proposals are? Sure. On health care? Yes. What I would do is first and foremost fix the Affordable Care Act. There's some good bipartisan legislation in the Congress to improve the Affordable Care Act. So that's the first thing I do. The second thing I would do is begin a conversation in this country around creating a, a uh, universal health care system. Because I do believe every American should get health care as a right. And to some extent, we have a, a universal health care system right now. It's called the emergency room. So if you're, uh, if you're sick and you go to the emergency room, they have to take care of you by law. And the average emergency room visit is about 15 times the, your average a visit to a primary care physician. So we should have a smarter universal health care system, and I don't think it should be linked to someone's job. You know, my dad was an electrician. He had one job for 60 years, so it probably made sense back then to tie your health care to your job. But I think my kids, I got four daughters, I think some of them may have 10 jobs, and I don't think the health care should be tied to their job. I mean, imagine tying up. What I propose is to leave Medicare alone, to create a new kind of universal health system for everyone from when they're born to their 65. We'd roll Medicaid into that because that's actually the largest healthcare program we have right now. And, uh, but we'd allow people to buy supplemental programs. I'm not in favor of efforts to get rid of uh, commercial insurance. We'd allow people to buy supplemental programs. 
So most people would have insurance that feels like Medicare. They get a basic plan as a right, and then they can buy supplementals and have all kinds of choices in terms of other options they want. And I pay for that whole system because I've got it fully paid for. I think when we propose stuff, we ought to tell people how we're going to pay for it. I pay for that system by taking, uh, eliminating the corporate deductibility of healthcare, which is a very large tax exclusion that we have right now and costs our country about $4 trillion over 10 years. And I think that's important because I think that would also start delinking healthcare from people's jobs, which doesn't mean their companies couldn't help them arrange these supplementals or negotiate group deals. But fundamentally, I'd like to see the market evolve so that uh, health care is more tied to the individual than tied to the person's job. Uh, we have a question from Donald Moret from Occam Health in Maryland. Uh, Donald, you're on the phone? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Donald. Okay. So, question for you. I, I, we, we, we insure an awful lot of people, and, and, and we understand the, the inner workings of the system. And I hear politicians every single day, you know, screaming about the pharmaceutical manufacturers. Um, but uh, we know for a fact that the real imbalance in drug pricing doesn't actually come from the pharmaceutical manufacturers. I'm not. I'm not sitting here telling you they're saints and that they don't make money because they do. But the real problem is the pharmacy benefit managers, who are the middlemen between the between the manufacturers and 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 sponsored health plans, be them corporate or government or what have you. Um, are, do you have Do you have any plans to to take on the the pharmacy benefit managers, and when I say that, I'm I'm talking, you know, you know, the the Express Scripts, CVS, Optums, Rite Aid, yep. uh, Cardinals of the world. It, it's 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 nearly a nearly a, a you know a situation in 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 price manipulation uh, that you know that borders on RICO. Uh, and so, is is that in your game plan? So I agree with you entirely. The, the pharmaceutical benefit managers really don't add a lot of value, in my judgment, uh, in the healthcare system, yet they've embedded themselves so deeply in, um, in uh, you know, the healthcare delivery system that it's kind of hard to work around them. So I think what you ultimately have to do is you have to use some of the government's powers around uh, antitrust and monopolies to really uh, – look at their business practices like you're talking about. I think we need to do things to encourage new participants in that market. I mean, quite frankly, I think a company like Amazon, which has tremendous technical capabilities and tremendous logistic capabilities, could actually disrupt some of these businesses. And I, I think that's one of the things behind the partnership Amazon is doing with Berkshire Hathaway and J.P. Morgan. So I agree with you entirely. Uh, they take a lot of the margin in pharmaceuticals they don't add a lot of value. They've taken a lot of power out of physicians. When I go to hospitals and I talk to, to folks and physicians, what you hear all the time is the frustrations they have dealing with these companies and trying to get things approved that they know are the right things to do. And no one really sees them adding any value in the system. So I definitely want to deal with that. But the other thing, quite frankly, I want to deal with, it's also a big issue with the pharmaceutical companies, is we're, we're basically in a situation now. The... Uh, 
the United States is, is effectively uh, funding the whole industry, and, and in many ways, the other wealthy countries in the world are free-riding on us. If you go to Germany or Spain, you'll see situations where people are paying a third of what we are for drugs. And the reason for that is those countries have one person negotiating the price. And, that, and no matter where you get the drug from, it, it, it's subject to that price. And so because of that dynamic, they drive prices down really low all over the world, to some extent below cost. And as a result, the pharmaceutical companies have to raise prices here. So there's an argument that the U.S. consumer is effectively funding the whole drug innovation business because these pharmaceutical companies do need to make money, obviously, to invest in innovation. So I think that should actually be a trade issue. And we need to, uh, particularly the G20, I'm totally in favor of selling drugs to poor uh, countries at lower prices. But the other wealthy countries in the world, we should pay the same price they do. And we have to put this on the table as a trade issue and effectively get those countries or get the pharmaceutical companies to raise prices in those countries and lower them here. Uh, our next question is from Laura Dawson in North Carolina. Laura, you're, uh, you're on. Good morning. Uh, can you hear me okay? I can. Good. I'm in a remote spot, not normally my business area. Uh, my company is Food Physics and Body Dynamics. We specialize in providing acupuncture as opposed to opioids and nutrition. So nutrition education certified to physicians to use clinically rather than using a drug or a pharmaceutical prescription immediately. So we're sort of a wedge between this industry that you're talking about right now. So I want to make sure that you realize that this country is not using the acupuncture community sufficiently for the treatment of the elderly and instead trying to fight over drugs and drug prices. Are you considering or are you even aware of that resource? Well, I'm obviously aware of the, uh, the services the acupuncture industry provides and the fact that a lot of people have seen, you know, very good results uh, from, that, uh, from that form of treatment of a variety of situations. And I do think we have to, obviously, based on this opioid crisis, which is, you know, we still have over 100 people dying a day uh, from this. And, you know, we, we have to think differently about pain management. And I think we are starting to do that. I think, obviously, people are beco- becoming much more careful with, you know, with the immediate prescription of, of opioids and encouraging people, you know, not only who have short-term pain issues, but also people who have chronic pain issues to uh, think about other ways of treatment. Uh, next question is by email. It's from uh, Glenn Powell in North Carolina. question is, um, you said that the uh, Green New Deal is impracticable uh, and you favor a carbon tax. The carbon tax seems impractical. So I don't think the carbon tax is impractical. Uh, and I introduced the first bipartisan carbon tax last year in the Congress. It really depends how you do it. So let me tell you, because a carbon tax can mean a lot of different things to lots of people. So the way we do our carbon tax is um, we put a price on carbon, and that number is about $15 a, a metric ton. And most people think the social cost of carbon is anywhere from $30 to $40. So we start at low, and then it goes up about $10 a year. So it goes up at a faster rate, but you start at low. And that continues for about 10 years. We take 100% of the revenues that are generated from that carbon tax, and we put it in a lockbox, and then we distribute those revenues to the American people as a dividend. So they basically get a check. 
So to some extent, it's going out one pocket through higher uh, energy prices related to fossil fuels, which is the point of the carbon tax, to allow renewables to be more competitive. But then it goes back in the pocket of the American people again through this dividend. And you structure it so that the carbon tax itself is, is regressive by nature, meaning you know, low-income people, energy is a bigger percentage of their budget than wealthy people. So when you pay the dividend back to them, you do it on a progressive way, so you even that out. And so our bill's been actually modeled by Columbia University to reduce carbon emissions by 92% uh, in about 15 or 20 years. And it's been modeled to actually put more money in the pocket of low to middle uh, income Americans than they pay in energy costs. We also give them an option to take their dividend in cash or to put it in a 529 program, a health savings account, or a retirement account. And the reason for that is we know all those programs really make sense. They allow you to save on a tax-free basis. But most Americans don't have access to them because they don't have any savings. So it would be kind of nice for them to maybe take this dividend and put it in there. So I think a carbon tax is very practical. You, 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 you apply it at the source. It's a market-based solution. It uses the free markets to actually change behavior. Because we do have an issue with climate change, and we have to start dealing with it. And I would much rather deal with it in a market-based approach then through some kind of a central planning approach. Congressman, we've got a couple questions about immigration. Uh, uh, two uh, relate to high-skilled immigrants and how they get more coming to the United States, and one relates to just increasing the number of immigrants to increase the population and the workforce. Uh, could you just walk through your ideas about immigration reform? Sure. I, let, let me touch on the second question first, because there's a really good insight behind the question, I'm sure. And that insight, which I think more people need to appreciate, is the worst thing for a country economically is to have a shrinking population. There is nothing that is worse for a country as a matter of just pure economics to have a shrinking population. And there's a lot of countries in the world right now that have birth rates that are not self-sustaining, and they don't, they're not welcoming to immigrants, and they are shrinking, and it's disastrous, right? We don't want to be there, right? And our birth rate has actually started to go down in the last couple of years. So immigrants are really important for not only just the overall economic model of the country. Immigrants bring in a lot of energy. They're much more likely to start a business. They're most more, much more likely to be an entrepreneur. So I think the case for, for you know, robust uh, you know, legal immigration is really, really strong. I'm a big supporter of the bipartisan, comprehensive immigration reform bill that passed the U.S. Senate in 2013, with significant bipartisan support, by the way. It would have passed the House of Representatives where I was serving, and President Obama would have signed it into law, but it never got a vote. And that was a huge tragedy. And that comprehensive immigration reform deal, it did three things. It put a lot of money towards border security. It created a pathway to citizenship for the 11 to 13 million undocumented uh, people in our country right now. And then it also reformed the visa programs, which you're talking about which really do need reforming. They're, they're very much outdated. A lot of them were put in place for policy reasons that don't exist anymore. And we really need to create more programs for high-skilled uh, uh, immigrants, particularly those who come here and get educated and we want to keep them in our country to add to our economy and start a business. So that's how I think about immigration reform. Uh, we've got an, another question about the, going back to the uh, Green New Deal. If you could comment on that, please. So, yeah, so I think the Green New Deal is actually a step backwards on dealing with climate change. 
And this is coming from someone who has been very focused on dealing with climate change, right? I was given the, the, something called the Citizens Climate Lobby Legislator of the Year Award for my work on actually putting in place a bipartisan carbon tax bill, right? So, so I think this is a big problem and we really need a solution. The problem with the Green New Deal is, number one, the goals are impractical. We cannot move to a zero carbon world in 10 years, right? 80% of our energy comes from fossil fuels right now. 10% comes from nuclear and 10% comes from renewables. The thought of moving to 100% renewables in 10 years is just not possible. There's also a lot of language in the Green New Deal that doesn't favor nuclear, which I also don't support, right? Nuclear energy is really important as a base load energy source. So that's the first thing that's impractical. The second thing is, if you actually want to do something on climate change, why in the world would you also then tie it to universal health care, which I support based on what I said before, as you know, but I also know that's a huge thing to get done in our country. And why would you tie it to something like universal basic income, which is basically paying everyone, which is something that I personally don't think is smart policy, and there's no way there's consensus in this country for that. So I think what they did with the Green New Deal is they put out a lot of stuff that are, that are not practical. They basically made representations about what we could do that are impossible. The other thing they said is we should rebuild every structure in the United States of America, every structure in the next 10 years. I think if every single person in this country stopped working and all of them started working on rebuilding the structures, there's not even enough people to do that. So it's a bunch of impractical goals and you're linking climate change to something, other stuff that's, that aren't going to happen. So if you actually care about climate change, you should be interested in doing a real solution like my carbon tax bill that I just described. And the other thing I'm calling for is a significant increase in the Department of Energy research budget, which has been proven to actually do really good work. It kind of works the same way NIH does. And I think the way the United States has solved problems in the past is we have innovated our way out of those problems. That is the American way, to look at a problem and unleash all the intellectual capital and all the entrepreneurs we have in this country to help solve it. If we really want to fix climate change in the long term, we need innovation in battery and storage and transmission technologies. And I'd like to unleash kind of a moonshot uh, research initiative in our country to help solve some of those you know, more vexing problems. So, not a fan of the Green New Deal because I think it's a step back. It makes it harder to do something on climate. I'm for real solutions that make sense. Uh, we've got a couple questions about trade. Uh, a. Highland from Tennessee uh, asks what, uh, whether you favor the new NAFTA. And then we've got a couple questions about tariffs, uh, specifically their impact on uh, farmers. So I, and I assume sure. that's the retaliatory uh, impact, the, the retaliation. Yeah. So I do favor the new NAFTA. Listen, I was one of the few Democrats to support President Obama when he was trying to do the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I thought was good for us economically, but particularly good for us from a geopolitical standpoint. So, and the new NAFTA kind of resembles a lot of stuff that we're going to be done in the in the new, you know, in TPP. So, I'm in favor of it. Obviously, I think the president's—I shouldn't say obviously, but I, I think the president's trade war is really hurting American farmers and. While I actually think he's right about the problem with China, we do have a very, very significant problem with China. So, you know, he's right about that as, as a matter of his gut, if you will. But I think his solutions that he's proposing, in other words, engaging in this trade war, focusing solely on the trade deficit is the only metric that matters, 
as opposed to dealing with China the way we need to, which is to get all of our allies and all of our private companies on the same page and present a unified front to China, which is very important to do, to basically get them to change their practices around intellectual property theft and other things they're doing. That would be my approach. The unfortunate thing is that uh, the 11 trading partners from TPP decided to do the TPP without us, and we've also got the uh, Regional Economic Partnership, uh, I forget much yep. what the name of the deal is, uh, which has 40% of the global economy, but not the U.S. So, uh, and, and, and we were going we to be, if you think of that 40% as a, basically a big table, we were going to be at the head of that table, right? right? And it's crazy we didn't do it. Now, the good news is, Trade, trade Promotion Authority, which is effectively the authority that gave the president, President Obama in this case, the ability to negotiate and finalize TPP, still is outstanding, and it'll actually be outstanding six months into the next presidency. So when I win the presidency, one of the first things I'm going to do is get us back in TPP. <laughs> Got it. Um, and what about uh, tariffs and, the, and just the, the, the impact on uh, uh, farmers? So I, that's it's terrible. Easy. I mean, listen. Yeah. The steel tariffs and then the, the retaliatory tariffs. Look, so, so American farmers are paying a big price uh, because the president's trying to engage in a trade war over the, de uh, over the trade deficit, right? I've, I've done 24 trips to Iowa in the last 18 months, and I can tell you when I sit down with bean farmers and, and all the other types of uh, products, pork, et cetera, that have been subject to these tariffs, they're hurting. And they don't like the bailout that's been proposed because, A, it's not enough, and they don't want a bailout or a handout. They want a market-based solution, right? They want to sell their products all over the world. So I don't think it works. Again, I'm not sitting here – I'm not one of these people saying here the president's entirely wrong about China. He's not. We've got a big problem. But um, this, isn't, this, it, this alone is not the right way of dealing with it. It's also hurting manufacturing, right? It may be help, hurt, helping steel, but a lot of U.S. companies – you know, are affected by those higher steel prices that it's created, right? There, there, there's some talk that one of the reasons GM closed its Lordstown plant uh, was because of increased steel costs. So just as an example, I mean, that's never been confirmed, but it kind of makes the point. And the retaliatory tariffs are making it tougher for those auto plants to export to foreign markets. So, Absolutely. Uh, so it's not always more expensive to build it here, but it's too expensive to, uh, to export. Um, right. Uh, last, uh, we've got a couple questions uh, on infrastructure, um, and uh, both of them relate uh, to uh, just highways, mass transit, and uh, a couple of references to airports. So um, we've underinvested in our infrastructure. You know, we used to spend about 5% of our economy on it. Now we spend about 25 And just to put it into perspective, China spends 85 right? So if you view China as our main economic competitor, they're doing three things. They're investing in infrastructure, they're investing in renewables, and they have a national artificial intelligence and technology strategy. I fear right now our, our kind of uh, economic policy, if you will, or our industrial policy is steel, aluminum, and coal, when it should be renewables, technology, and infrastructure. So I, I've been a big proponent of spending more money on infrastructure. I had a bipartisan bill that created a trillion dollars of infrastructure uh, funding, it had 40 Democrats, 40 Republicans. It funded all the different types of infrastructure. It, we had transportation, energy, communications, with a particular focus on rural broadband, water, where we effectively have a completely outdated water system in this country. It was not supposed to be, it was supposed to be replaced 50 years ago. 
Um, and, you know, our infrastructure is in rough shape. The American Society of Civil Engineers, which does a report card on our infrastructure every two years, they gave us a D plus last time. So we need to spend more money on infrastructure. It needs to be done in a fiscally responsible way. And roads and transportation are a big part of it. And, you know, the main vehicle to fund infrastructure for roads and, trans and mass transit is something called the Highway Trust Fund, which is funded by the gas tax. The problem is we haven't raised the gas tax since 1992, which is one of the reasons we spend so little money on infrastructure. So I'm in favor of increasing the gas tax. I'd like to do it in a way where it's dynamic, meaning when gas prices go up, the gas tax goes down. And when gas prices go down, the gas, the gas tax goes up so that you kind of smooth out prices for the consumer, but you generate more revenues for the highway trust fund, which then gets granted right back to states and local governments to build roads and mass transit systems. Thank you very much, Congressman. Uh, Congressman's uh, campaign, if you want to learn more about the Congressman's positions, you can go to johnkdelaney.com. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in sharing some recommendations with his campaign, uh, we encourage you to contact his policy director, Samantha Price, at samantha at johnkdelaney.com. Um, Congressman, uh, um, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, if you've got any, do you have any uh, closing words for the, for the group? Well, I want to thank you for having me, and uh, I want to thank you all for participating in the public policy debate in this country. I think there's nothing more important than folks running small to mid-sized businesses to have a seat at the table in terms of what we're doing. You know, again, as someone who uh, started a couple of businesses, I know how tough it is, I know how rewarding it is, and I also appreciate how important it is to drive the innovation economy and to really job, to drive the jobs economy in this country. So I'm just grateful for what you do, and I'm really encouraged when, when you folks want to spend time on public policy because your voice uh, is, uh, is needed. I remember when I first came to Congress uh, six years ago, I was sitting there listening to Democrats and Republicans talk about what business cares about. And I was sitting and talking to someone, and I said, you know, the funny thing is business doesn't care about any of that stuff you think they care about. Uh, so we need more of your voices. So I just appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much, Congressman, and thank you very much, everyone, for uh, joining us today. Uh, uh, we look forward to uh, working with you more as we continue Solutions 2020. Have a great day.